The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia, a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org slash seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Windhoek for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there. Hi, everyone. This is Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast is brought to you by the Society of Economic Geologists and is sponsored this season by Goldspot Discoveries. I'm Ann Thompson, a partner in Petroscience Consultants, and I am your host for this episode. This week, we are switching environments from magmatic sulfide deposits to the rocks in the near surface, exploring supergene secrets. Many of us would rather map a fresh rock unaffected by weathering, but what might we miss? And what can we learn from studying oxide minerals and the rocks that host them? We have two extremely knowledgeable guests today. They've both spent their careers working in this environment, and through them, we'll get insights into both arid and humid weathering processes. First, I spoke to William Chavez, a professor at New Mexico Tech. He has years of experience in a variety of environments, with special interests in what are now arid landscapes and porphyry deposits. He's also a great teacher in the field, and many of you may have met him there. How did you get to be a geologist, let alone working in in the ugly weathered zone of so many ore deposits? I began interested in geology because I grew up in the Mojave Desert, and I grew up in a very small town back in the 1960s. And so really, there was there were two things. There were very clear skies and lots of rocks. And so my interest really had to be one of the two. And so I chose the rock end of things. So that was my uh, startup interest. And that was then curried by people that taught me both in elementary school and then ultimately in high school that encouraged me to go this sort of rock scientist end of things. And then choosing a school like New Mexico School of Mines when I was a college age kid, that just drove me even more into this field of uh, exploration geology. And the idea behind looking at weathered profiles, and you, you have a correct phrase there, that these rocks, they look pretty messed up because weathering has taken their toll on them, really began with me as a little kid, just looking at rocks that were all beat up and turned into clays and gross, as we call it, you know, when you weather a granite, that sort of stuff. Yeah. But then really continuing that in my graduate career when I was sent down to Chile to work in northern Chile, and to again, look at rocks that in some cases were very well exposed, but were very, very heavily weathered. So that began my interest in weathering processes. Right, for sure. So graduate school, you were at Berkeley? I was at Cal. That's right. Right. Was interviewed by John Hunt and got a chance then to go down to northern Chile and uh, work at the Montes Blancos copper silver system. And then the people there were really good mentors to me. And what they did is they allowed me to travel with them to look at prospects that were being presented to Hochschild at the time. And so I saw the collections at El Salvador. I saw Coyahuasi. I saw Cerro Colorado when it was just a tunnel in the side of a hill. I saw Coyahuasi when there was nothing there except an exploration camp. So again, I got a chance to see these buried weathered trains. Yes, mostly in porphyry systems, but in other systems as well. And so that developed my interest or curried my interest again in looking at these weathered profiles in basically in arid terrains or what are now arid terrains. So between Arizona and Chile 
anywhere where it seems to me like you might have ugly rocks and clear skies, correct? That's sort that's, of where you want to be. <laughs> well, it is because you're not messed up with all this green stuff on the ground, kind of obscuring the rocks. I've had assignments in places like Colombia, and it's great. But boy, all the green stuff and the vegetations and the uh, snakes tend to obscure what we really look for, which are outcrops or indications of mineral deposits. So having worked in Central Asia, having worked in Iran, having worked in places in Latin America, it's really refreshing to be able to walk into a place and say, I can at least either see rocks or through the alluvial cover, I can kind of figure out where I need to be. And so that makes it for a very interesting, still challenging exploration experience. So looking at this whole topic of the superficial weathering of ore deposits, I came across one of our founders, RAF Penrose Jr., who actually wrote an article in the Journal of Geology in 1894 called The Superficial Alteration of Ore Deposits. So it's really interesting. But in it, he also talks about the names we have for these things. And, you know, the Cornish miners called them Gossens. The French called them Chapeau de Fer. The Spanish-Americans, it was Colorados or Pacos. Um, and I'm sure there are other names, too. The, the Germans had, a, had an iron hat kind of name, Eisner Hut, as well. So it's really interesting. But obviously, this is something that must have captivated and been part of human civilization's development over thousands of years. And people have recognized the, the need for resources. And then they recognize, well, where do we get these things? So it didn't take much of a geologist uh, thousands of years ago to recognize where we would be able to search for and then find copper, silver, gold, which is what happened precisely at places like the Iberian Pirate Belt, especially at places like Rio Tinto, where people then discovered that, hey, this uh, rather ruddy, crumbly looking rock uh, does contain stuff that's of interest to us. And they began to mine it and to do so in such fashion that it became a very valuable, not only a resource, but a target for other peoples to come and try to take over those targets because they were so valuable for the metals that they contain. Yeah. And this happened, of course, not only in Iberia, but it happens in other parts, especially of Europe and in the Middle East over time. And the Chinese even recognized this in deposits that they have uh, in the Altai and Tianshan Mountains. And so we get a chance to look at historical importance of these weathered rocks. It happened all over the place. I think it's almost a law that in Latin American countries, we have to have a Cerro Colorado. We have to have a red hill because those hills tend to demarcate to what we now call ore deposits. And countries have recognized that, geologists have recognized that, and they've made them an outstanding feature of their geographic context as well as their geologic context. And then beginning in the early 1900s, when we were able to take advantage of lower-grade ores, what we would ultimately call porphyry-style systems and their related ore types, we began to recognize that these splashy gossens had very much first cousins in what we now call leached cappings. And so that began another evolution of our understanding, as people have put out for a long time, of weathering processes and their effects on especially sulfitic or sulfide-bearing rocks. But the, the leach cappings, what happened to make that possible to start really looking at those rocks as resources? Well, the initiation of froth flotation that allowed these otherwise very low tenor materials, which we again call disseminated ore deposits or porphyry systems, that allowed them to become economic. We can mine them and make a profit off of them, rendered them an interesting ore targets. And from the early 1900s until uh, today, they continue to be very interesting targets. And again, even undercover, we're looking for these leached capping signatures that tell us something about metals mobility and what people have now come to call supergene enrichment of these style deposits and others, including massive sulfides, and making them either economic or even more economic. 
Right. So let's talk about processes in that environment, in the arid environment. So you go there now and the Atacama is this incredible landscape and it's dry and there's very little fluid to move minerals around, but then there's this evidence of weathering processes. So how is it happening? Well, we know that places like you mentioned, like the Atacama Desert, in that case, it's been a, a desert for the last 13 million years or so since the onset of extreme aridity in that part of the world, you know, in that part of Argentina, Peru, southern Peru, northern Chile, and then other places like the southwest U.S. and the independent republic of Sonora that experienced pulsating periods of wet and dry over the last 50 million years or so to give them the chance to be, as we say, enriched in metals that are moving in the weathering environment. So what we look for historically and we can use age dating to help us with this, especially age dating of components that are derived from weathering like uh, manganese oxides or alienite, uh, even jarosite. We can look at these right. minerals and they'll tell us the story of their weathering history, when it happened. And in some cases, like Alan Clark and his students have done in northern Chile, we can look at how long these periods of protracted aridity and then temporal climates and then wet, dry seasons that promote the mobilization of components that are soluble. Oh, they had to get oxidized first. So we want that dryness. So these alternating periods of wet and dry seem to foment the ability of a system to be weathered, transport, be weathered again, retransport, and get into what we would call a cyclical series of periods of metals mobility, accumulation. And then ultimately, as we see in a lot of places here in the Southwest, as well as in uh, Northern Chile and in Central Asia, we got to preserve them. We want at one point to say, hey, we've done our enrichment, we're, we're good to go on this, let's now quit eroding the system mechanically, weathering is still okay, but let's preserve this so it doesn't end up somewhere off the coast of a country. Yeah, that's all pretty interesting. It's a lot of process. One of the things that Penrose did in his paper was actually describe the process, and he just gives us simple definitions. And he says, the superficial alteration of ore deposits as of any rock results from a combination of mechanical and chemical disintegration brought about by the combined action of the atmosphere, surface waters, changes in temperature, and the various organic and inorganic materials contained in the air and water. So have we changed that at all? You know, we really haven't. And that's a good thing that we haven't because we recognize the main components that are responsible for weathering and that ultimately are responsible for mobility of elements. We would add to that because we can do that now the importance of bacteria, you know, biologic activity and biologic mediation of a lot of the reactions that people discuss that are responsible for destruction of raw components, especially the sulfides, and then reconstitution of those components as sulfides, as sulfates, as some other component that we then accumulate or we dismiss, we flush it out of the system, again, attributable to bacterial mediation and a lot of the reactions that affect what you and I would call the weathered rock mass. One of the advances, again, if we want to add to that the critical recipe list that we have, and we do have a recipe for making successful supergene enrichment and metals mobility, we want to add another component to that. It certainly would be, as you suggest, Anne, age dating, because we can look at when were favorable conditions extant that promoted or that did not promote metals mobility in the weathering environment. And so in places like South America, we can actually begin to divide up sort of bulk intervals of time when we know that things were very propense for the mobility of metals. And so we can then say, we like systems that display weathering during this particular interval of time, because that was a time that was very favorable 
if they were exhumed for the mobility of, of metals. Right. And then we look for, as I also mentioned, then the preservation. That's something that covered these systems up, gravels or ignimbrites or something that covered the system and prevented mechanical and maybe prevented some of the geochemical effects on an otherwise well-developed weathering profile and hopefully an enrichment profile. Yeah. So what is the economic benefit? Well, there are a number of benefits economically. The most important one, of course, is just reconcentration. And so we take a component of rock that might have 700 to 1,000 ppm copper, as it does, say, in Tyrone, New Mexico, and we can upgrade that 1,000 ppm, 1,200 ppm rock to something on the order of 5,000 or 4,000 or 7,000 ppm, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.6, 0.5% copper. And that makes for an otherwise uneconomic rock to be quite economic. And if we throw in the economics of how we might recover a particular resource, especially one that's, that's been enriched, a calcocyte, uh, maybe a copper oxide resource, it's so inexpensive then to recover those minerals and extract that copper that the disenrichment process is really critical in making those not only economic, but in some cases quite economic, where otherwise we would have just had an interesting accumulation of copper in an igneous or sedimentary or metamorphic rock. And this right. upgrading process then really does impact our view of the economics of a particular mineral deposit. So is there always something else underneath this leached cap? Do you always find a primary ore body underneath everyone? In the case of sulfide, that's almost certainly the case, Anne, because we know that there's only a certain limit, of course, to the vertical movement of components, that is the vertical reach of weathering processes. This sort of thing was recognized very early on by the Anaconda Corporation as an example at El Salvador. So with Vin Perry and Bill Swain and their teams in the early 1950s, along with Charles Meyer at their lab in Butte, Montana, they were able to recognize the vertical extent of weathering by using very sensitive minerals like uh, conversion of anhydrite to gypsum or the destruction of chloride that told them, well, this is really the base of our enrichment profile. Well, what lies below that? And then, of course, then, as you point out, we have some sort of hypogene protolith, some sort of hypogene primary mineralization that's been relatively unsullied by weathering processes. That's not always the case if we talk about copper oxides and those that may have uh, fled the scene of the crime, so to speak, and they form what we would call exotic deposits, meaning that they were transported away from their primary source, generally by stream channels, and deposited elsewhere. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, going back to Penrose again, when I was skimming through his paper, back in 1894, he had a pretty good idea of the depth of this alteration in a whole variety of places all around the world. So he talks about Chile being up to 1,500 feet in depth at that point is what they knew. In Tasmania, you know, 600 feet. He, he goes through locations of ore deposits globally and gives a range of depths for the weathering. That's right. And really part of that, uh, the depth of weathering, is dependent upon tectonics. And in, in our case, we look at the mobility of district size or regional size blocks of the Earth's crust. And in some cases... We can point to places maybe in western Mexico in the Sierra Madres where the tectonics have been so frisky, so active, that systems have been exhumed and they're still going up, which means that the erosional processes, especially the erosional profile, really can exceed that of the weathering profile development. And so we see at the surface fresh sulfides. We see this in some places, for example, of southeastern Turkey. Nice mineral deposits, nicely uh, mineralized by the hypogene processes but the supergene profiles may have been destroyed or never existed 
because of uplift. And then we go to other scenes where things have been relatively sedentary for a while, maybe parts of Central Asia, Mongolia, and certainly parts of uh, South America, where we see very, very deep weathering profiles because the rocks have been subjected to weathering for so long and haven't moved up or down a whole lot. And we can then see the effects of weathering down to 1,000 meters, 1,500 meters, maybe very, very deep, especially along fractures and faults where this weathering is taking place. Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. So part of what I think attracts people to this whole weathered zone is that there are actually, particularly in copper systems, some really cool minerals. And they're beautiful and they're pretty to look at. You know, we talk about the the Atacamites and the Malachites and the, all those minerals that we love to, to look at and collect. And do they feature much in the work that you do? Or are they just the pretty, the pretty add-ons? No, they're not just mineralogic eye candy. You know, <laughs> they're actually very important for us, and because we can use EHPH diagrams uh, as you know, initial exploration geologists as we're learning as students. And we know that those stability fields do tell us something significant about how those minerals formed, under what conditions they formed, and therefore they indicate who was moving, who wasn't moving at the time, who could have been moving, that sort of thing with respect to copper, with respect to silver, with respect to gold. Uh, we could get the cobalt bloom, you know, stuff like this. All these really pretty oxides, and even the ones that aren't so pretty, like the manganese oxides and maybe some of the iron manganese oxides, but they all tell a story. They never lie, and they're always beautiful to us because they always give us something to go on regarding the geochemical history or the evolution of the geochemical history of a weathering block of rock. Right. That's cool. Well, that leads me to, if I'm out there exploring, what, what do I need to know if, if, if I'm actually a field geo with boots on the ground? What, what do I need to, to be aware of in this search? Well, a number of parameters, but perhaps the first, uh, you know, the top draft choices in that, number one would be the type of iron oxides, whether they're indigenous, you know, they're in place, they represent what was there. Uh, during the weathering process, or whether they've been transported and they're in fractures without any evidence of what you and I would call boxworks or cellular structures. That's one. Uh, we typically like to sample those that are in the boxwork area because they tell us something about what was there and, hey, did they leave any hints for us as to what might lie below? We also look at the mineralogy of the iron and manganese oxides because they, again, they won't lie to us. They'll always tell us how they got there and especially minerals like gertite, and then essentially all of the black oxides, they're very good geochemical sponges, and so they will adsorb transition metals. And so we can sample even the ugly stuff, and it will tell us something about, hey, this was a fluid that passed over me and through me, and I was able to take out some metals. So if you're looking for these metals, find out where the fluids went, and that might be a big help. You know, that sort of thing is what right. we would look at mineralogically and geochemically. And then, of course, we look for original stuff like veining. Do we see quartz veins? Do we see quartz veins with altered center lines or sutures? What's in those sutures? Are they empty? Are they full? What are they full of? You know, that sort of thing. So we look for both the physical things as well as the chemical things. Right. I, I know I've been guilty in my career, particularly my early career of oh, manganese oxides or gertite or lumping different oxidation states together and just saying, yeah, that's that. Move on and find something interesting, right? I mean, you throw a sample in. You, like you say, you always sample the box works and that's that's critical. But to actually spend a bit more time to figure it out, that's a different story. It is. But I'll have to confess that, you know, you're not so far off there, Anne, in your early uh, 
attitude towards these otherwise, uh, you know, sort of grungy looking oxide minerals, because it really doesn't matter to us initially what's there. We just have to recognize that, hey, there's something black and it's brown and want to scratch. This is good stuff. I don't know what mineral it is. I don't know what manganese oxide it might be or combination of iron and manganese, but it's going to be good. And so we tend to want to sample those things without regarding the mineralogy. The only one where it's really important is we recognize that gertite among the iron oxides, that's a real good one to be a good geochemical sponge. And so that's the one we want to sample. We want to recognize and give it credit for what it tells us about the pH of the environment in which it formed. Right. So even when you talk about being a sponge, it's one that's going to tell you more about what's moved through it, what fluids have moved through it. Right. That's right. Because of its adsorptive capacity. That's correct. Yeah. Well, I, I think I better get back out on the expiration cake. <laughs> I've got some outcrops from my past to go back and look at again. Yeah, that's awesome. Iron oxide there. So the other key thing, which is, this is the, the one that I think most people spend their time worrying about now, because we feel like we've seen everything that's outcropping. The stuff that's covered under the alluvial fan or wherever it is, what are what are we looking for and how are you said earlier that you know you could sniff it and i i imagine that that bill chavez is probably good enough to sniff it but the rest of us aren't so sensitive so how do we find it you know there are a number of ways that we can try to look through and people have done this for a long time trying to sneak through looking at ignimbrites and sniffing up fractures or using trace elements looking at the manganese oxides getting back to them um, do that over alluvial cover, or colluvial cover, lots of geochemical ways we've looked at things, and as well as geophysical ways we've looked through this cover or trying to look through the cover. What companies, of course, do now is they look for structural trends that persist, or what they believe persist under, under some sort of cover, and then try to do some either deep sampling, if we can't apparently, as we can say, snip through an ignimbrite. They'll drill a hole down as far as they can go and see if they can get down to the base of uh, the ignimbrite or the cover, and then actually sample whatever is lying below it. We have great examples that are exposed in pits in both, uh, say, southern Peru and in northern Chile of erosional profiles. And those erosional profiles have beautiful cobbles, boulders of leached capping. And that leached capping was a very well mineralized, very well veined porphyry system. So we know if we can get down to even just this weathered profile, we can use the same techniques we would use on a regular outcrop to help determine the prospectivity of a particular property. Right. It's a little bit more complicated than it used to be, but that's all right. I think it's just really recognition of the products of supergene weathering, of this weathering process, and looking at minerals that, again, as you pointed out, many of us early in our careers, we sort of looked at them askance, saying it's just messing up my outcrop. I want to get to something fresh. Well, these minerals, especially the iron and the manganese minerals, they always have a good story to tell if we're just there to listen to it. So looking at these minerals and then looking at where they occur, defining their importance in terms of their geochemistry, maybe even their mineralogy, if you want to get down to that, and then assessing their importance with respect to a particular target type for which we're looking. So I I just always go back to the uh, iron and manganese story because that seems to be the most persistent one that we can use because they exist in this weathering environment and they're very happy there, then there are minerals that we can take advantage of in our exploration efforts. Next up, I talked to Paolo Vasconcelos, professor at the University of Queensland. And although he and Bill share some history via connection to Berkeley and an interest in the supergene, Paolo's work has taken him 
in a different direction. The whole name is actually Paulo Marcos de Paula Vasconcelos. And I've been using Paulo Vasconcelos my, my whole life, but now uh, I've been going back because it's uh, complicated with all the referencing and things like that. But Paulo Vasconcelos is the name, and I began my education career in Brazil as actually I had been an American field service student in, in the U.S., in Maryland. And then when I came back to Brazil, I went to a university in Brazil. I began a law school in chemical engineering. And at that time, I applied for a scholarship to go to the U.S. And I got a Fulbright scholarship for four years to study at the University of Kansas, where I switched from petroleum and chemical engineering to geology because I got a job in my first semester. And I realized that geology was everything I wanted to do. Was, you know, we had the science part and also had the field part, which was something that really inspired me. So I began working as a research assistant on the glacial deposits in Kansas. And that is what got me into the geology career. And then I did my undergrad at the University of Kansas. And I did my field camp in Colorado, Canyon City, Colorado. So I mapped very fresh rocks. And that was my whole understanding of rocks. And immediately after that, I went to spend summer vacation in Brazil. And I realized I we had discovered a small amethyst deposit in my family's farm, and I decided to go map it. And when I went to map in Minas Gerais in Brazil, most of the rocks didn't look like rocks at all. It was just like a mountain of dirt. Everything was red and very clay minerals and all the rock experience that I had from Colorado did not apply at all in Minas Gerais. So I had to kind of reinvent my learning process. And that's when I realized that Understanding weathering is essential, particularly if you want to do real geology in a, in a tropical environment, because what you have under your foot is not necessarily the rock that you study in your textbook. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's classic. When I first got to Australia, after having mapped in the Western US quite a lot, yeah, I spent the first six months crying when I walked onto an outcrop. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It, it's kind of inspiring because I, I tell people, you know, it's very good to be able to look at a weathered rock and in your brain deconvolute the weathering process. I have a, a, a theme that I tell my students, read the rock. You have to look at the rock and really understand what you're stepping on. One of the things that I try to tell people when you're mapping is that you can't see subduction zones and suture zones and kind of volcanic arcs and things like that if you're not absolutely sure about what rock you're stepping on. So if you're stepping on a rock and that rock is all oxidized and all deeply weathered and you don't know what that rock is, find a way of actually deconvoluting the processes that created that crud, as most geologists like to call weathered rock, and understand whether that crud is a granite, a basalt, a sediment, or an ultramafic rock, because that's going to be essential in your big picture interpretation. So know the rock. And it's not that difficult. It's just a matter. You may have a rock that was an igneous rock that saw some hydrothermal process and then saw saw some weathering. What you need to do is go from the end, take the weathering away and say, what would that rock be without the weathering? And what would that rock be without the hydrothermal alteration? And then you get back to the original rock. You have to understand the chemistry that happens in each one of those processes. You have to understand the physical chemistry of the solutions, the elements that get transported, 
which elements are mobile, which elements are not mobile. So if you do backward chemistry, you understand what rock you're looking at. And that, that is the inspiring part. You combine, I must say, I combine a little bit of my chemical engineering approach to things. I, I, I was, I used to like corrosion, you know, corrosion in chemical engineering and weathering. <laughs> it's on a big scale corrosion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you had all this cruddy rock and then that inspire you to continue in graduate work? At, at that time, I applied for, for studying at the University of Texas in Austin. And when I got to Austin, I started working with Richard Kyle. Rich basically gave me a bunch of Alan Mann papers from Western Australia. Yep. And he was a very inspiring author at the time. A lot of his work from the, for the CSRO was really groundbreaking in terms of understanding gold. And at the same time in Brazil and the Amazon, there were a lot of gold deposits being developed. The Serra Pelada deposit was an inspiring kind of thing where you had gold nuggets that were very difficult to explain by any other process other than supergene. So I, 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 I contacted some colleagues at Valley and I began working on weathering and gold deposits in Brazil. And one of the things that struck me at the time, it was the processes must be slow, therefore it must take a long time, but we had no control on time. Right. Well, how would you have control on time? I mean, when you think back to the way we used to do geochronology or the tools we had. Exactly. I, all my training in geochronology had been look for the freshest rock. If the rock is even exactly. slightly oxidized, throw it away. Don't even bring <laughs> it to the lab. <laughs> so I, I actually must say that I had uh, some inspiration from a, a professor in, in Austin, Leon Long. Then uh, I gave a presentation showing that a lot of the supergene deposits had the mineral gerocyte, which is potassium iron sulfate. And, and I said, we actually tried to do gerocyte by potassium argon, but the amount of gerocyte that you needed, it was too big. And the crystals were, I mean, it was too contaminated with the, the, the rock. So, and, and at the same time, I decided that uh, it was time to move west. And I, that's when I went to Berkeley. And I basically contacted George Primhall and we had a really good conversation. And at the very beginning, I started working on trying to date Gerocyte, and I met Garnus Curters, who had just created the Berkeley Geochronology Center. It was actually at the time the geochronology branch of the Institute of Human Origins, right next to the campus on Berkeley. And I began doing work there, and a colleague from the BGC, Tim Becker, really liked the idea of trying to develop something completely new and dating weathering minerals as opposed to fresh minerals. So that's when we began doing gerocyte dating. And one day I realized that, well, sulfates are interesting, but they're not going to be everywhere. So let's look for a mineral that may be more common on a global scale. And I look at the iron oxides, uh, Brimhall took the whole group to Africa. So we went to Mali right. and look at it. Oh, great. And <laughs> you know, look at uh, iron oxides and iron oxides. I tried to find some trace amount of potassium in iron oxides, but <laughs> whenever you had some trace potassium was a contaminant. And that's when I got inspired. I had like a rock collection. I had kind of put myself through education by buying and selling minerals from pegmatites in Brazil. And I had this chunk of uh, botryoid or black manganese oxide. And I thought, well, maybe I should analyze that for potassium. It happened to be cryptomelane. And it was really massive cryptomelane, very uh, well-behaved. And 
Right. I took it to the lab next day. We crushed it. We did potassium argon, got some beautiful results. And then we radiated, did some argon, argon, got some great results. And that's how I got inspired in developing and refining the geochronology of manganese oxide. And then I went back to the Amazon. I went to Carajás, where there was a, an interesting manganese deposit in the middle of the most, let's say the areas of you know, major supergene enrichment in Brazil. So I collected manganese oxide from the Azul mine, and that became the essential work on, on my PhD thesis. Right. So interesting. I think there, there's an awful lot, a lot of just, oh, manganese oxides or iron oxides, and you kind of map it and you kind of look at it and you go, ah, and you, and you keep walking or you're looking for the fresh rock or you're looking for hydrothermal alteration, right? And I'm sure there's a lot of manganese oxides that I've left without fully thinking about the implications. Yeah. I mean, even from the perspective, I mean, the geochronology is what yeah. drives me. I go anywhere I go on the planet, I look at a rock, a weathering profile. The first thing that I try to do is identify the presence of super gene minerals that I can date. And they immediately identify based on color. So the colors of the outcrops will tell you where you find manganese, where you find sulfates. But I always say some of those super gene minerals, they also sponges for other elements that migrate in the weathering profile. So for example, if I go to Mount Isa, I find manganese oxides and manganese oxides may have 10, 15% lead or zinc in them. So if I just collected the manganese oxides as opposed to collecting the silcretes in the area, I would find the deposit right away. Century, century zinc was one of those. The manganese oxide crust was on top of the deposit. It was just ignored. It was called a false gossen. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and this stuff had the mineral chalcophyonite, which is a zinc manganese oxide. It was pretty obvious that there was a huge anomaly in those elements in the immediate environment. And you right. see that in the Amazon, you know, the copper deposits in the Amazon all have copper-bearing manganese oxide. So you've right. got a cryptomelane in the Amazon or lithophorite in the Amazon, and you have two to sometimes 10% copper in the manganese oxide. So there's right. quite a a bit of, uh, let's say, ease for some of the supergene minerals. In addition to the geochronology, you can actually get some idea of which elements were migrating in the groundwater right. know, a long time ago. And that's yeah. pretty much what exploration is all about, exactly. trying to understand that process. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So that d discovery of the ability to date the manganese oxide, how have you used that? I, I know the work in Brazil and some surprising results, I think, to, to people who think about weathering in tropical environments. Yeah, the, the whole idea was the first manganese oxides that I dated were from Minas Gerais, and all the ages were Miocene. And Minas Gerais, for the people who have done exploration in that part of the planet, Minas Gerais in Brazil is a place of rolling landscape. And there are places where you have complete lateritic profiles, but not throughout the whole state. So I decided to go to the Amazon, Carajás, and start looking at the whole history of manganese oxide precipitation. And the interesting thing is there were manganese oxide as old as about 65 million years. And when we did the geochronology on the manganese oxides, if you collect a sample from different depths in the profile, what you got was a sequence of ages that came all the way down to zero age. So basically showed that the weathering profile was something that was continuously evolving. But when you plotted those results, what you did find was that 
you didn't have a continuous history. You have an episodic history. You have clusters of ages. And this is from old to young? Generally old to young. It's not that simple all no. the time. <laughs> of course not. Many places you get perfect old to young, particularly when you have a manganese-rich rock like a gondite, like a metamorphose manganese-rich sediment, where the weathering had to advance through relatively resistant rock. In the Amazon, it's a little bit more complex. So you have sometimes older minerals deeper in the profile. Sometimes you have younger minerals up on the surface because it has undergone some recent recrystallization. So the, the vertical distribution is quite complex. But the right. interesting thing is that if you analyze 100 samples, and in the case of argon, argon, I generally do two or three grains per sample, what you do see is an episodic history. And that episodic history at the time when I first looked at the results and I compared to pedoclimatological record, you looked at what was interpreted as wet and uh, hot periods in the past were periods that we saw an abundance of mineral precipitation on the weathering profile and where you have transitions toward, toward more dry and maybe now colder climate, global climate, the weathering minerals were less abundant. So that was the inspiration to actually use the geochronology of supergene mineral to actually interpret pedoclimate. Okay. And that's something that's still being refined. And several groups have worked in Africa now and in India. And I came to Australia and start doing work in Australia. And we find that, you know, the distribution, the major peaks of mineral precipitation many times match at a global scale. So there are periods of time in which things were weathering more effectively and periods of time where there was a transition towards less effective weathering. And that seems to be a reflection of global climate. I know you've also worked on cappings on iron ore deposits in Brazil. Is that an important part of the development of the deposits themselves or, of, or what happens with these crusts that, that form over the iron ore deposits? The, the iron deposits uh, are quite interesting because we look at banded iron formations and we think, well, the banded iron formation weathers to a very rich iron deposit. But when you go to Western Australia, you'll find out that not all banded iron formations have weathered to rich deposits. So there looks like there's a precursor process. And in that process, it's probably a hydrothermal process that happens in the banded iron formation where you partially replace the silica with the carbonate. And then that makes the banded iron formation more prone to weathering and you begin to weather it. And essentially the dissolution of the carbonate leaves a dust of microplatey hematite. If anybody has any if anybody has ever visited an iron mine in Brazil, for example, you know, you you dig through a very hard crust, but then right. you get to a blue dust that you can basically you can just scrape it out of the ground, very soft. You don't have to do much blasting at all. Uh, very fine material, pure hematite. All the right. cement, all the silica, all the carbonates have been leached away. So that the weathering does enrich the bandanite information, but or the enrichment process is actually debilitating because you leave something that's very friable, easily eroded. Now, luckily, what happens <laughs> at the surface 
is that <laughs> that hematite begins to dissolve and reprecipitate as girthite, and that girthite forms a cement, and that cement is a protective cover. So if you look at a satellite image over the Amazon or a satellite image over the iron deposits in Minas Gerais, Brazil, you see in the middle of a tropical forest, you see an area that's kind of reddish with no vegetation, but no grassland. And that's because you basically don't have soil on the surface. We, we give that iron crust the name a natural iron crust called kanga. And some of the iron crust actually, in a certain way, reflects the internal dissolution processes. So sometimes you find collapsed structures and you find lakes. It's a, a, equivalent to a karst, but in the banded iron formation. And that iron crust is essentially fragments of the banded iron formation, dust of hematite, and the entire thing cemented by girthite. Right. And, and that was the inspiration for saying, well, manganese oxides occur in bandanite formation, but not in a great abundance. Can we date the girthite? There were already some indications. I mean, girthite has, was first dated in 1908. You know, when people start trying to date minerals and look at radioactive distribution of or, or noble gases, you know, yeah. but I worked with a colleagues at Caltech and Farley and, uh, and David Schuster, who is now at Berkeley, but he was a Caltech PhD student. And that's how we began to look at girthite. Luckily, we look at girthites from Carajas because we are looking at a supergene gold deposit. They got a Pebaia gold deposit in Carajás that was also very rich in uranium. So the girthite had tens of ppm uranium in them. So it was very easy to measure the radiogenic helium. Right. So we could date the girthites. And that's how we refined the technique for dating girthites. And then we began to apply the bandanai formations in several other places. And the interesting thing, it was Similarly to what we had seen in the manganese oxide, there is a range of ages reflecting the different processes that have shaped that rock through time. You could easily predict age from cross-cutting relationships, basically showing that the iron was dissolving and re-precipitating and then re-dissolving and re-precipitating. Right. And in many cases, it was breaking. So what does it actually look like? It, it, it looks like a breccia. You walk on the surface and you have big blocks of iron oxide floating around with big fractures in between. And then those fractures have uh, newly precipitated, you know, often coliform girthite forming, trying right. to cover the fracture. And those coliform girthites are being more recently precipitated. And one of the in interesting things, one of my PhD students started doing electron microscopy and finding out little you know, filaments of bacteria and, and right. little round features that look like little no, microorganisms. So that may be bugs actually driving some of those reactions. And that's where we began to investigate not only the ages and the sequence of ages, but also the processes of girthite dissolution reprecipitation. Re and re-cementing it into something yeah. durable. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and that, that protective cover it, it is essential for some of the iron deposits in the Amazon would have been completely eroded away if you didn't have that kanga layer, that protective cover on the surface. So yeah. that must have implications for development of additional deposits. Is, is, it sounds like it's a, a, it's a particular kind of biological yeah. environment. So how does that happen once the deposit gets developed? 
Yeah, what we tried to do here, and uh, there's some work that I, I began with my colleagues in Valley in Brazil when I was at the Valley Institute of Technology, was to basically say one of the challenges in opening a new iron mine is getting the environmental license. And mm -hmm. the iron crust on the surface, the Kanga, has a very specific type of vegetation has many caves with very, very specific types of micro and macroorganisms. And you now in many places, the, the kanga has become protected. And in order to actually get a environmental license, you need to actually show that one day you might be able to recover the, the local environment. And what we did here at the University of Queensland and with my colleague Gordon Southern and, and some of our postdocs and PhD students, particularly a, a PhD student, Alan Levitt, who was very inspired by the whole thing. And we designed a bioreactor where we could mimic what happens in a natural bend and iron formation and just basically use the organisms that are already there and just feed them a little bit more a healthier diet. Give, you know. give them a little boost, a little few vitamins. <laughs> exactly. They, they, all they need is actually more food, not even a vitamin. <laughs> <laughs> so by, by basically providing that extra food, by creating similar environments where we have reductive conditions that lead to iron dissolution and then a transition to oxidizing conditions that lead to iron reoxidation precipitation. So you go you create a bioreactor where you go from reducing to oxidizing, reducing to oxidizing, back and forth. Right, cycling. Exactly. And that allowed us to create, in a matter of a year, an iron crust right now. What we need to do is that we need to look at the entire scale. The problem is that we're talking about precipitating iron. So you need to actually create the hydrological and the biological conditions to re reproduce this oxidation reduction, oxidation reduction at a scale and on slopes that would allow that iron cementation to take place. So that's active right. research happening at the moment. Watch this space. We have some ideas. We are trying that out. <laughs> That's a lot of interesting stuff that you've just talked about, but I think that your work in weathering is taking you off the planet's surface and, and to the solar system as well. Is that right? Well, I moved to Australia <laughs> to study the red continent. Yeah. And then once the red continent became too small, I began to study the red planet. So that's how I, I, I got inspired in look, you know, looking at similar process on Mars and particularly because I was collaborating with my colleagues at, at Caltech and they organized a, a conference right before the Curiosity mission, you know, and their whole idea that there would be a, a lab on the surface of Mars with a mass spectrometer on the, on the, on the lab that we, we could actually look at some of the rocks on Mars was very inspiring. It became uh, an interesting challenge whether we could date some of those minerals on the surface of Mars. And that's how I got involved in the MSL mission and then well, the Curiosity mission. And now I'm uh, working in collaboration with my uh, colleagues at Caltech on the Mars 2020 mission. My dream is to actually find a chunk of gerocyte or manganese oxide that we can drill, cache, and bring back to Earth <laughs> and, and one day date those minerals here. But at the moment, we're studying the same processes that we see during a weathering of a rock on Earth we see at a different scale and, and different products because of uh, the limited amount of water and the fact that the water is not 
leaching through the system, but it's just locally reacting. So it causes weathering, but doesn't transport things away. So you have to have to deconvolute a different set of processes. Exactly. Yeah. So there, there, there's some interesting challenge in explaining some of the chemical reactions that we see at the surface of Mars because things are not leaching away as effectively. So the weathering products stay in situ and trying to understand that relationship, how an, a more aggressive fluid may have interacted with a rock, may have a a mafic igneous rock composition and what kind of reaction products you produce are the same challenges when we, that, that we face when we look at weathered rocks on Earth. To Bill Chavez and Paolo Vasconcelos, many thanks for sharing your knowledge on deciphering the rocks we are standing on. There are a lot of takeaways for exploration and mapping from today. Many thanks also to you, our listeners, for joining us. Please like, share, comment on our social media posts. We do appreciate your support and interactions. I'm Ann Thompson, and I'll be back again next week for the very last episode in Season 2. This one will celebrate the founders of the Society of Economic Geologists and those who also helped define what economic geology is today. I'll share a conversation with Russell Mears, an avid storyteller. All the episodes of Discovery to Recovery are available at segweb.org slash podcasts and many other places you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow the SEG and Goldspot on their social media channels to get notified about new releases. This episode was produced by your host with support from our production team, Aisha Ahmed, Hallie Keevil, and Sam Weatherly. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds. You can check them out at eastwinds.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode and catch you next week. <laughs>